Good morning. Happy New Year, everybody. Good to see you again. It is uh, self-improvement season, that time of the year where people are making New Year's resolutions, uh, trying to find an area of their life that they want to improve on. Real quick show of hands, how many of you have made a New Year's resolution? Wow, all right, good for you guys. Okay, how many of you have made a New Year's resolution, but uh, you've already broken it? It's okay, you're among friends. Get back on the horse tomorrow, try again. How many of you don't make New Year's resolutions? You're done. You just don't do that anymore. You're past it. Yeah, you're in good company. Uh, I, was, I was looking at some things this week, and I found out that uh, 38% of Americans, they don't even do the New Year's resolution thing. They're just, they're done with it. And, and I can see why, because if you actually look at the number of people who succeed at fulfilling their New Year's resolution, it's, it's so low. It's 8%. 8% of the people who try to change something in their life, who try to succeed in self-improvement, uh, succeed. And that means 92% of us, and I've been a part of that 92% many times, we just don't make it across the finish line. And so you ask yourself, why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we start off the year with a loss? You know, it's like, why don't we just ease into 2017? We kind of blew it out at the end of 2016. We ate too much, probably spent too much. Why are we starting this year with some huge goal that's probably going to be really hard to fix or, or to accomplish? And as I was thinking about it, like why I do it and why probably others and millions of people make New Year's resolutions, uh, to quote my favorite Spaghetti Western, it's because of the good, the bad, and the ugly in our lives. Maybe you've seen this movie. Uh, in our lives, we have good things, we have bad things, and we have ugly things. The, the good things are the things that, that we, we hang our hats on. It's the things we, we post on Instagram. It's the stuff we talk about with our friends when we hang out. It's the stuff that you know, we like in our life, things that are going well. But then right behind that, there are some bad things. Those are things that are going the wrong direction in our lives, things that are getting out of control, things that are getting off track. And if we don't get a hold of these things and address them quickly, they quickly become ugly things. And the ugly things in our lives, well, that's just the stuff I don't even want to talk about. I don't want to look at it. And I definitely don't want other people to know about it. And the problem is, if bad things are allowed to become ugly things, eventually ugly things will eat up the good things in our lives. And so we have this pressure to improve, to get better, to correct things, to, to pursue our goals, to go after our dreams. And the beginning of the year seems like a good time to do it. And so millions of people around the country are bucking up and making New Year's resolutions and, and, and taking the field and trying to succeed. And yet, again, 8%, that's how many people are successful. And so it begs the question, how do you do it? How do you change? How do you improve? How do you uh, accomplish a goal? And it's not just New Year's resolutions. It's any resolution. Because a New Year's resolution in January is no different than deciding you're going to work on something in May. It requires the same commitment, the same focus, all the same ingredients to be successful. So how do people change? How do they improve an area of their life? It's a good question to ask. It's the beginning of the year. And so I've been thinking about this. And looking around for different answers that our culture provides. And there's some bad news and some good news. The bad news is nobody knows. Nobody knows. You could read 10 different books online and you get 20 different answers. Even the people who are successful don't really know how they did it. And so it's very easy to be discouraged if you go to the self-help section of a, of a bookstore or online. There's all these different conflicting pieces of advice about how you're going to get a hold of that area of your life that maybe is getting bad or ugly. The good news is God does know. God knows how to change our lives. And he wants to help you change for the better in 2017. He has been doing this with people and for people 
for as long as there have been people. And he wants to do this for you and, and I. And he wants to start this year. And so what I'd like to do today is I'd like to look at a guy whom God helped take an ugly thing in his life and turn it into something good. His name is Nehemiah. He's a Jew from Israel who lived 2,500 years ago in the empire of Persia. What had happened was Israel had been destroyed seven years earlier by Babylon. The city, the capital city, Jerusalem, had been destroyed. The walls had been burned down. The temple had been destroyed. All the people had been carried off to Babylon. And then Babylon got conquered by Persia. And this guy, Nehemiah, he's in Persia. And he finds out some really bad news that really bums him out. Something very ugly that he wants to fix. And he makes the mother of all New Year's resolutions. And what's amazing is he's successful. He succeeds. And so if we look at his life, we can actually see seven steps that Nehemiah took to be faithful on his end to accomplish his goal. And in his life, the problem was the city that he loved, Jerusalem, the capital city, the beating heart of the nation of Israel, had been destroyed and its walls had been torn down. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to build a wall. And he did. He was successful. Donald Trump would have loved this guy. He was ahead of budget, ahead of schedule, and he got Persia to pay for it. It's amazing. And so we're going to look at his life, and we're going to pull out from his life things that we can do in our lives to rebuild the walls in our lives. And I hope today it's very practical and very helpful, and it will motivate you to get a hold of an area of your life that needs some work and to begin to work on it. But before we do that, the first thing we need to do is have a quick assignment for you. So I'd like you to take out your program, take out the handout and a pen. And I want you to think of one area of your life that needs work. You're not making a New Year's resolution. You're not committing to change anything. But if you were going to work on something, this would be what you'd work on. Maybe it's a goal or a dream that you have. You've had it for a while. You don't even want to say it out loud. It's so scary. That may be the thing you want to write down. Maybe you want to improve your relationships, your marriage with your kids, boyfriend, girlfriend. Maybe there's something you need to do in your career, something that you've been needing to do for a while but you haven't, or a different job you want to take. Or maybe academically you have some goals that you need to set. Maybe there's a sin in your life or some sort of addiction that has tripped you up for a long time. You've tried to stop, but you can't. And if you were going to work on something in 2017, this would be a good place to start. There's all sorts of things that people focus on, finances, physical health, What's one area of your life that if you were going to work on it, this is what you'd work on? Just take a couple seconds and write it down. You don't even have to show anybody. All right, let's begin. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dig into the autobiography of Nehemiah. God, I just pray and ask that you would speak to us today. Lord, you are good and you love us. You have a rescue plan for the whole human race. And it's your intention that all of us would live a life of love and joy and goodness with you and with your people forever. And that is not necessarily where our lives are. And so we ask today that you would help us to see what's possible in 2017. And that through the life of Nehemiah, the man that you helped, that you would show us what you're willing to do in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing we're going to do is look at the very first paragraph in the very first chapter of this guy's life. And here it is. This is the autobiography of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. 
In December of the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes of Persia, when I was in the place called Shushan, one of my fellow Jews named Hanani came to visit with some men who had arrived from Judah. I took the opportunity to inquire about how things were going in Jerusalem. How are things going along? The Jews who returned to Jerusalem from the exile here, how are these guys doing? Well, things are not good. The walls of Jerusalem are still torn down and the gates are burned. When I heard this, I sat down and cried. In fact, I refused to eat for several days, for I spent the time in prayer to the God of heaven. When I first read this, I thought, it seems like an overreaction. But then I realized that this is actually a key step that all of us have to take if we want to succeed in self-improvement, if we want to rebuild the walls in our lives. And that is this. Nehemiah has vision. He has a crystal clear picture of what Jerusalem should be in his mind. I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know who, but somehow this guy who didn't grow up in Jerusalem, didn't see the city when it was glorified and beautiful and full and built, this guy could see it in his mind. He had wrapped his heart around what the city of God should be. He could see the walls of the gates and the towers up high and proud, symbolic of of God's protection and presence. He could see the temple at the center of the city with the gold and the offerings going up, the place where heaven and earth met, where God and man could dwell together. He could see this in his mind. He wanted it. He thought this is what Jerusalem should be. And against that picture of what Jerusalem should be, against the, the way it ought to be, he hears that it's ruins. It's rubble. Take a look at some of these pictures. This is a picture of what Jerusalem should be. This is a, a replica. You can see the walls tall. This is a picture of the temple. This is somehow this guy could see this in his head. He could see the way it ought to be. He had a clear vision of what he wanted it to be. And yet these men came back and this is what they said they saw. Rubble and ruin. And so if we're going to make progress towards the goal, if we're going to change an area of our life, then we have to have a really clear picture of where we want to end up. We have to have a clear vision. Vision is about the way things should be and could be. You see them so clearly it motivates you. It motivates you to make the changes that you need to make. Vision unites your head and your heart and it empowers your hands. And so if you want to change, if you want to be successful, you have to have a crystal clear picture of what should be true in the area of life that you just wrote down. At the end of 2017, what are you going to be able to do? What is going to be true about your relationships? What's going to be true about your financial life? What's going to be true about your physical health, about your walk with God? What, what do you hope to see? What do you hope to be able to do? The clearer the picture, the more motivated you're going to be. One of the reasons why a lot of people fail is because they don't like something in their life, They have kind of this emotional high and they run off in the opposite direction. But they don't have a clear picture of where they want to go. And so it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get tripped up. It's easy to quit. Your responsibility and my responsibility is to come up with that clear picture of our preferred future. Don't be general. Be specific. Don't say, I want to improve my finances. Say, I want to have a credit score of 700 or higher. I'm going to pay off my school loans. I'm going to have zero debt or no credit cards or whatever. You have to be precise. Don't say, I want to I get better physically, healthier. No, my blood pressure is going to be X, my cholesterol is going to be Y, and my body weight is going to be Z. You want to be specific. Don't say, I just hope my kids and my family gets better, but get a picture of what would be true at the end of the year if things went as good as they could go. Because that's the picture that's going to motivate you. And it is your responsibility and my responsibility to have that picture. Somehow Nehemiah had that picture. 
And that is what created the tension inside of him and the desire inside of him to do something about this, to take an ugly thing and to turn it into a good thing. So the first step is vision. The second step you see in his life is repentance. Henry Ford used to say, if you do what you've always done, you get what you've always got. That's a great saying. If you keep living 2017 the way you lived 2016, then the situation is going to be exactly the same at the end of the year. And so repentance is not quick. It doesn't happen in seconds. It takes time. Repentance is slow. And Nehemiah models for us what real repentance looks like. It says, when I heard this, I sat down. I cried. In fact, I refused to eat for several days. For several days he's going through this process. I spent the time in prayer to the God of heaven. I'm talking to God about why we're here. Why has this happened to the city of God? Oh, Lord, I cried out. O oh, great and awesome God who keeps his promises is so loving and kind to those who love and obey him. Hear my prayer. Listen carefully to what I say. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, I and my people have committed the horrible sin of not obeying the commandments you gave us through your servant, Moses. What Nehemiah is doing is he is modeling for us what repentance looks like. And there are several steps to repentance. The first thing you see is that he stops. He sits down. He thinks about what's going wrong. He actually asks the question, how did I get here? What are the dominoes that have fallen to this point? What do I keep doing or what am I not doing that keeps me in the same place in this particular area? He's thinking through what has caused this. He's doing a post-mortem. He's doing an autopsy. A lot of people, they have something in their life they don't like, and they run off in the opposite direction, but they never ask the question, how did I get there? What are the choices that I keep making in my marriage, in my finances, in my spiritual life, in my career, in my academics? Why do I keep ending up here? Or why am I not where I want to be? Repentance is slowing down and thinking about it. It's evaluating. And once you've done that, then the next step is to take responsibility. It's not to point fingers at other people, but to say, here is where I have control over this situation. And here's what I need to do differently. And after you've taken responsibility, now you're ready to change. Now you're ready to do things differently and ask God for help. Now, when you do this, this can create sorrow. You can feel sad. And there's different kinds of sorrow. There's the bad sorrow. It looks like this. You don't want to be here. Okay. You don't want to do repentance and end up on a ledge somewhere. That's not the kind of sorrow that repentance will create. Then there's good sorrow. It looks something like this. It's reflective. It's sober. Because you're looking at something in your life you don't like. You're looking at the walls of Jerusalem torn down. You're asking the question, how did I get here? And so repentance is a critical step if you're going to really be a part of that 8% of the people who succeed at changing an area of their life. The next step is step three. It's game plan. <clears throat> Winston Churchill is one of my favorite historical figures. I think he's the best leader of the 20th century. And he used to say, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. If you don't have a plan, you have a plan. Your plan is to fail. You have to have a plan to take you from where you are to where you want to be. And the responsibility to plan is on me. It's on you. And so what you see with Nehemiah is he has a clear plan for how he's going to build this wall, which is crazy because the guy's a cup bearer. His job is to sip a cup that the king of Persia is going to drink to test it for, for poisoning. He basically plays Russian roulette with a wine glass every day at work. 
That's his life. He doesn't build walls. The guy's not an engineer. He doesn't have a background or a PhD in engineering. But somehow he puts together a plan to go from a Jerusalem that's in ruins to a Jerusalem that's rebuilt. And so we also have to have plans to take ourselves, our marriage, our relationships, our finances, our spiritual life, whatever area you wrote down. You have to have a plan to take you from where you are to where you want to be. And if you do have a good plan, then God will bless. Then God will open the doors to make that plan possible. And you see that in the life of Nehemiah. Watch this sequence of events. Nehemiah has a plan, and then God opens the door. Listen, he's, here, let me set it up. He's, um, he's with the king. He's sipping the wine. He's really sad. The king's like, hey, you're bummed out. What's going on? He's like, well, my city's burned to the ground. It's kind of a bummer. So then the king says, what are you requesting from me? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's grave, that I may rebuild it. I want to rebuild the walls. And the king said to me, how long will you be gone? When will you return? What's your plan? What's it going to cost? What are the resources that you need? What's your business model here? What are you going to do? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. I had a plan. I laid it out for him. Okay, I'm going to leave at this time. I'm going to go there. I'm going to do this. I'm going to need this. I'm going to need that. And then he goes on. He says, and then I said to the king, hey, if it pleases you, let letters be given to me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. It's going to take diplomatic papers. I'm going to need a passport. I'm going to be going through some different places. I need you to kind of allow me to get through your kingdom. And then he says, I need you to give me resources, king. He says, and give me letters to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and of the fortresses of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for because the good hand of my God was upon me. So here he is. He has these plans. I don't know how he got these plans. I don't know if he had some engineers over for dinner at his house. But somehow when the moment came, the opportunity presented itself, he was ready to lay his plans out before the king. And the king said, thumbs up. He got Persia to pay for the wall. And so this is a key thing. Many people are unsuccessful at changing things in their lives, fixing things that are broken in their relationships, growing spiritually or achieving their goals because they don't have a plan. Whose responsibility is that? It's my responsibility. It was Nehemiah's responsibility. It's your responsibility. And if you want to change, if you want to make progress in 2017, you can, but you're going to have to sit down with paper and pencil in hand and you're going to have to think through a plan to get you from where you are to where you want to be. The next step once you have a plan, is to build a team. Nehemiah builds a great team. Now, Ken Blanchard is a businessman. He's a very successful businessman, very successful at building teams, and now he spends his life teaching people how to build great teams. And he says, none of us is as smart as all of us. None of us is as smart as all of us. That's, that's the truth. You can do a lot of things if you're a talented individual, but nothing compared to what you can do in a team. And so Nehemiah has a great plan. He has a vision of what he wants Jerusalem to look like. He has repented he has got the backing of the king, but now he's got to put together a team of people to help him become successful at the work he wants to do. And we need a team. No matter what you wrote down on that piece of paper, you need other people to help you accomplish your goal. Listen to what happens. It says, three days after I arrived at Jerusalem, I stole out during the night, taking only a few men with me, 
for I hadn't told a soul about the plans for Jerusalem that God had put into my heart. I was mounted on a donkey and the others were on foot and we went through the valley gate toward the jackal well over the dung gate to the broken wall and the burn gates and I'm showing the guys around and I'm showing them what it looks like and isn't this horrible and look how bad this city is and let me tell you what the city used to look like and here's my plan and here's your part. Do you want to join me? Do you want to do this? And he puts together a team. And these guys, they rebuild the wall. They get it done. You are going to need a team. If, look, if you have a marriage that you want to work on, things are going the wrong direction in your marriage, and you decide, I'm going to, I'm going to get better at my marriage, that's just 50% of the equation. You're going to have to get your wife or your husband on board. You're going to have to have a team to change the marriage. If you want your family dynamics to change, it's going to require a family meeting. And everybody being very clear about what's going wrong and what needs to happen and what each person's part is. If you have a goal for your job or your business, your business partners are going to have to be on board. Even if you want to change yourself, right? You want to get your, your, your weight or your finances better. That's going to impact people. And you need people to help you, to hold you accountable, to encourage you, to pace car you. You need people who are doing what you're doing to kind of help you stay on track. None of us is as smart as all of us. None of us is as good as several people working together. And so who is the key person? Who are the key people that would make your area of life more successful? If you had a plan, if you're going to improve the area you wrote down, whose help do you need? What guy, what girl, what people, if they helped you, if they got on board, would really make you successful? Think about that question. Identify who those people are. And then ask them, hey, would you help me with this? Here's what I'm asking you to do. Don't say, will you help me with this? And then leave it nebulous. Be specific. I would like you to check in with me this frequently and ask me these questions. You do the work and then you recruit people to help you play their part. If you have a a goal that you're pursuing uh, vocationally in your job, the same thing. You want to bring people together who are affected by it, who who can make it successful and say, here is where we could be. Here's what we could do, and this is your part. Do you want to be on this team? This is a critical thing. This is why 92% of the people who try to change don't change, Christian or not. Because who wants to do this? This seems so extreme, Matt. It sounds a little intense. Well, get intense. God's intense. Look at the sun. He made it. You can't even stare at it. It's so intense. Intense is another word for intentional. And you have to get intentional. If you just keep doing what you've always done, you're going to keep getting what you've always got. You know this is true. And these voices in your head are saying, well, that just seems a little extreme. Silence those voices. Get extreme. Grab a hold of your life and set the direction you want to go. And then go that direction with your plan and with your team. That's what Nehemiah did, and God blessed it. Now, the next step is getting to work. You've got to get to work, and you've got to measure progress. Peter Drucker is another guy started business, is a very successful businessman, teaches people how to build teams, how to be successful in business. He said, what we measure improves. What we measure is improves. And we know that. You know, if you weigh yourself, if you keep track of your money, if you keep track of the gauges on your dashboard of your car, you tend to make sure those things are all where they need to be. If you don't measure things, they get kind of bad. They get out of control. And so what you see with Nehemiah is that in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Nehemiah, it's almost a a blow-by-blow of the progress that they're making. It's, it's kind of boring, actually. It's like this guy built this section with these resources, and he finished it at this time. And this guy built this section with these resources, and he finished it at this time. 
But what I realized as I was reading it was this guy is giving us a picture of the way he thinks. He measures progress yard by yard, all the way to the end zone. And so I've just taken a couple samples. Here's one from Nehemiah 3. It says, Then Eliashib, I think that's how you say it, Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests rebuilt the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Now, okay, but what you realize is he's actually measuring who did it, how far they got, and when they finished. Here's another one. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hasena. They did the whole thing. They cut the beams, hung the doors, made the bolts and the bars. Very precise. And then the last one, so we labored at the work from the break of dawn until the stars came out. These guys worked hard. They did 14-hour days. These guys got up early, and they went to bed late. When it was ready, when the plans were ready and the team was set, they got after it. And that's what we have to do. We have to work hard, and we have to measure progress. Now, this is very difficult. How do you measure progress when you're trying to improve a relationship? I don't know. You've got to figure it out. But I promise you, if Nehemiah was shooting for that goal, he would figure it out. There is a way to measure progress. There is a way to know that you are on track. But if I don't have that, if I don't have a way of measuring my progress towards my goal, it's so easy to get discouraged, to feel like you're walking through mud and you can't make any progress and you don't know if you're getting closer. But if you have yard lines on the field, you can see the progress you're making. And that's what Nehemiah had. That's what you see in Nehemiah 3 and Nehemiah 4 is they're measuring their progress. So with the area that you wrote down, if you have a vision for where you want to go and you have a plan for how to get there and you have a team that's going to help you pull it off, make sure that you have a means to measure your progress and get to work. You can feel the weight of this. Man, this is a lot of stuff. Exactly. That's why only 8% succeed. Because very few people are willing to do what's necessary to change the areas of their life that are bad and ugly into something good. And that's unfortunate. But in 2017, God wants to help you and me. He wants to help us. And anybody who wants to try, rebuild the wall in their life. Now at this point, you see something interesting happening in the story. Opposition. And this is so true. I've experienced this. You've experienced this. Right about the time you start taking some serious steps towards the goal and you start getting momentum, something stops you right in your tracks. Something blows up. Something goes wrong. Something just trips you up. And that is because you have an enemy and he wants to stop you. As you study Nehemiah, you see three different forms of opposition. The first is the enemy. The second is people who are close to Nehemiah. And the third is Nehemiah and the men themselves. They are their own enemy in a sense. And if you know that you're going to face opposition, especially if you start making progress towards your goal, if you expect that, you're far more likely to take the hit and keep going. But if you just think you're building this wall, you're working on yourself in like a Disneyland-like world where everyone's nice and on your side, you're going to get knocked down. You're not going to know what hits you. You're going to get discouraged and you're going to quit. I'm speaking from experience. But if you know it's not Disneyland that you're building in, it's a war zone, and you start to feel opposition, you expect it. It's not fun, but you counterattack. And that's what you see with Nehemiah. He faces opposition, but he knows it's coming. And so he's able to stay on mission and finish his wall. So here's the first kind it's from the enemy. It says that last the wall was completed to half its original height. 
around the entire city, for the workers worked hard. But when Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabians, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, when they heard that the work was going ahead and that the breaks in the wall were being repaired, they became furious. They plotted to lead an army against Jerusalem to bring about riots and confusion. But we, we prayed to our God and we guarded the city night and day to protect ourselves. We were ready. You have an enemy. He's real. His name's Satan. I don't know what you think about that. That may sound crazy to you, but it's true. Jesus Christ talked a lot about this. He teaches us this. And Jesus Christ predicted his death, burial, and resurrection. And anybody who can predict their death, burial, and resurrection knows something about reality. And he is warned and he is taught and he wants you to know that you're not building in Disneyland, you're building in a war zone. And you have an enemy. And Satan hates you. He hates me. He hates the entire human race because we remind him of God. Because we are made in God's image. He looks around, he just sees a whole bunch of little images of God and it drives him nuts because he hates God. He wants to oppose God and tear everything down that is good. Now, obviously, he can't hurt God. So he's going to do the next best thing. He's going to hurt the people that God loves. And that's you. And that's me. And that's all the people out the windows. And as soon as you start making progress towards something that is good, as soon as you start doing a good thing and repairing the walls in your life, that pleases God and Satan is going to oppose you. And when you know that, when you expect that, you see guys like Tobiah and guys like Sanballat as the pawns, the chess pieces they are. Our struggle is not against other human beings. Our struggle is against rulers and authorities and principalities and powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. These are the things that are fighting against our progress because ultimately they want to destroy what's good for God and his people. And when you know that, it doesn't make it easier necessarily, but it helps you be ready. And so you see Nehemiah is ready. The second kind of opposition comes from people close to Nehemiah. In the interest of time, I'm just going to summarize this next section. The people of Israel that are building the wall in Jerusalem, they have a little civil war. The rich guys are extorting the poor guys for food. And it's causing all sorts of division. And the people are not working because they're fighting each other. And this is right in the middle of building the wall. So Nehemiah, he doesn't panic, he doesn't flip out, he doesn't lose his cool, he makes corrections, he deals with the situation, and he keeps making progress because he expects this kind of opposition. And I have experienced this, and maybe you have too. You're starting to make progress, and then your kids get sick. You're starting to make progress, and then someone on your team has something that blows up in their life. They're a critical piece, and now they're, they're MIA for a couple of days. You start to make progress towards a goal financially, and then your car breaks, or, you know, something else. It's just, it seems like these situations happen in such a way where the key thing that would stop you happens. And sometimes that comes from those closest to you. They're not your enemy. But if you're aware of that and you expect that as you're making progress towards your goal, you don't quit. You don't give up. You keep moving forward. And the last kind of opposition that Nehemiah faces is opposition from himself. There was a saying going around Jerusalem. There was this kind of bad attitude, and it was this. The strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much trouble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. We need reinforcements. We need more people. And we all know what this is like. You start making progress towards the goal, and it just gets harder and harder. You start to lose the vision of where you want to be, 
You know, it's the second week and the third week and the fourth week, and it's just, you feel like you want to quit. Maybe you cheated, maybe you made a mistake, maybe you went back, you know, you're frail, you're, you fail. And it's easy just to kind of get discouraged. And that's what these men are starting to face and they're starting to feel. And so what Nehemiah does is he counterattacks. And here's his counterattack. The first thing he does is he prays, God help us. Deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Help us get around this. He blows the trumpet. He blows the trumpet, which is symbolic of calling the team together, calling your friends together. Let people know that you're struggling towards your goal. Don't just suffer quietly by yourself. Get out your phone, text somebody, call somebody. There should be people who know what you're working towards, who can encourage you and help you. Just telling people what's going on sometimes is enough to take the load off of your shoulders. So blow the trumpet. Then he makes corrections. Again and again, he makes corrections, doesn't overreact, doesn't, doesn't make the wrong move, makes corrections, and then he keeps moving forward with his hands up because he's fighting in a battlefield, not in Disneyland. Listen to what it says. It says, Now we all return to our work on the wall, but from then on, only half worked while the other half stood guard. And the masons and the laborers, they worked with weapons easily at reach beside them or with a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. So he's made corrections. They didn't start with weapons, but now they have weapons because that's what the circumstances require. They expected opposition. They faced opposition. They addressed the opposition and they kept moving forward. And that's what I have to do and what you have to do if we're going to make progress towards our goal and be a part of the 8%. This last, second to the last step can be the hardest step. Finish well. Finish well. King Solomon said, finishing is better than starting, and patience is better than pride. I can get really excited about something. I can get all hyped about my new goal and tell everybody, I'm done with gluten, right? And then I run off, and after a little while, I get sidetracked, I get discouraged, I face opposition, I quit, and I don't finish. Finishing is way better than starting. And it's better to be patient, step by step by step by step then proudly getting all excited at the beginning and telling everybody what you're going to do, only not to finish. That's a really good observation Solomon made. Finishing is better than starting. And that's what they did. It says, after 52 days of work, the entire wall was finished. The entire wall was finished. Not 99%, all of it. And on the 25th day of the month of Elul, the hardest thing to do is to finish. You know, you get close to the end, you're really making progress, you're almost there, and that's the, that's the time when you're like, yeah, you've been good. You know, just take a break. It's not that big of a deal. Let it go this time. You know, just, just rest. But you want to plow all the way through the end zone. And that's what Nehemiah leads these men to do. He finishes well. Have you ever seen this picture? This is a picture of what a lot of us can do. We get discouraged right at the one-yard line. We're one swing of the pickaxe away from hitting diamonds. And then we turn. All the way through the finish line. That's the example. That's what Nehemiah shows us we have to do. The last thing you do is you party. You celebrate. Because this is a big deal. You have, you have re- reached your preferred future. You have accomplished your goal. You have changed this area of your life. And that is so hard and that is so rare. And you see the people of Israel, they party, they celebrate. They celebrate what God has done. It says that the day many, that day many sacrifices were offered and the people were full of joy because God had made them very, very happy. And the women and the children, they joined the celebration. They had a barbecue. People came out from everywhere. And 
the noise they made could be heard for miles, for miles and miles. If you, at the end of the year, by God's help, actually turn around an area of your life or fulfill a goal or a dream, you've got to celebrate. You've got to call people together and have a party. You've got to remember this great thing that God has done. So memorialize it some way. Take a video, get pictures, have an artist make something for you, write out the account and hang it on your wall so it's always there. So you can always see and remember that God will help you change. That you can give it to your kids and your grandkids or your friends to show them, look, this is real. God will help you. He helped me. He helped Nehemiah and he'll help you. Celebrate. Make a big deal about it. Formalize it in some sort of celebration. That's what they did and that's a key step. There's one more thing. And it's, it's woven in the story of Nehemiah. And this is it. Nehemiah absolutely dependent on God and God's help. Without God, this story never would have happened. You simply cannot do these kinds of things out of willpower and grit. You know, humanistically pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. If you just believe it enough, you can make yourself do it. That's not true. If you know people who try to build their lives in a particular area without God's help, they oftentimes have to tear down another area. They have to sacrifice something good to rebuild the wall. They want to build their career, so they sacrifice their family and their kids on that altar. Or they want to get healthy and, and, and get, get their body under control, and so they sacrifice their emotional well-being because they, they gained a pound, and now it's ruined their week. I went to England when I was a kid, and all around the countryside of England are castles that are half-built. Half of their bricks are mil- missing. And I asked the tour guide why, and he said, well, in England there's not a lot of stones. So in order to build one castle, you oftentimes had to tear down another And that is how we live this life. People will tear down one area of their life. They'll sacrifice one good area of their life so they can focus and build this area of their life. And that is not what God wants. God has the resources, the power, the energy, the wisdom, the protection, the things you need internally to rebuild. He has those in abundance. And the Father has poured those things into the Son. And the Son wants to pour those things into you through the Spirit. And this is why it is essential that we follow the master builder, Jesus Christ. He is the only person who has the resources we need to build our lives without sacrificing something good. And that's what he means when Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are tired of carrying heavy loads, tired of New Year's resolutions where you fail, tired of the same old sin, the same old problem, the same old unfulfillment. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and put it on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. Go up a little bit, please. And you will find rest. For the yoke I will give you is easy and the load I will put on you is light. As Christians, we can get away from the Lord. We can allow our relationships to get stale and get old. We can stop drawing on his strength and, and try to do it on our own. And so if you are a Christian and you're here, you may need in 2070 to start off by just repenting and saying, God, I need your help. I've been trying to build this area on my own, and I need you to help me. And he will help you the way he helped Nehemiah. I'd like to ask the band to come back up, and let's take a look at some next steps um, at, on the back of your uh, handout. I hope that today has been encouraging. I hope you can see the steps you could take to change an area of your life, what it is that we have to do on our end, and how God wants to help you the way he helped Nehemiah. Uh, Perhaps you realize that uh, you 
You, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need the resources that he is offering you. And so you, you want to commit your life to Christ, maybe, but you're not sure exactly what that means. You have questions. We would love to help you. Let us know. And myself or one of the pastors would love to, to be a help in helping you figure out what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to identify an area, or you did identify an area in your life that needs to improve. And the next step is to sit down and ask the question, why am I here, and what can I do to change it? And to begin to build a plan. Recruit a team and get to work. I, I hope that in 2017 you'll look back and say, this was a great year. This year was a year in my life where things really changed. And I know, because I've read the life of Nehemiah, that God wants to work with you in that. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and for your word and for what you've done in Nehemiah in his life, how he rebuilt the walls. And we pray that you would help us rebuild the walls in our lives. And we ask that you would pay for it. In Jesus' name.